Having kids is awesome, but raising them is challenging and filled with ups and downs. Sometimes the downs threaten to drown out the ups. In short, having kids is risky. We get it. We're parents too. But we're also pediatric emergency doctors. We have unique insight into risks and how to keep them in perspective. Welcome to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. Join Dr. Ed, that's me, and my co-host, Dr. Phil, as we explore the challenges and the fun of raising healthy children. Hello again, everyone. This is the second official episode of Cloudy with a Risk of Children. I'm Dr. Ed, and I'm joined once again by my eminent co-host, Dr. Phil. Phil, I understand you've just returned from a backcountry ski trip. I was fortunate enough to be able to get most of my kids, my three of my four kids out on a backcountry ski trip into our awesome Rocky Mountains. So I've got to ask you, Phil, what's the difference between a backcountry ski trip and a front country ski trip? Excellent question. Well, backcountry skiing is all, uh, the type we do is all self-propelled. So we are on mountaineering skis. We wear climbing skins. I never do it without a mountain guide because I don't trust my own skill set. I want to, I'll be out there with somebody who does it day in and day out. Um, and we climb up the mountains. We do lots of avalanche risk and assessment because that is the number one risk. Wow, that's pretty cool. In any case, I'm glad you're back uh, safe and sound. Uh, we should get to the topic uh, du jour, uh, what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk about drugs, uh, specifically one class of drugs in our business that we call uh, antibiotics. I recognize a second topic in a row, I guess, uh, related to pediatric infectious disease, given that the first topic we did was uh, on fever. But fair enough, since uh, infectious disease is the bulk of the sort of thing that you and I see every day in our uh, medical practice. So onto antibiotics, what are we going to discuss today, Phil? So I think some key topics, what are antibiotics exactly? When should they be used? What are their benefits? What are their downsides? We're going to look at the importance of something we call the normal flora and the use of probiotics in the role of normal flora and maintaining it. And then some comments on where most antibiotics are used. And just a small hint, it's not actually in medicine. At the end of our last show, I indicated uh, to our listeners that the title of this podcast would be something like, uh, I think I said, drugged at the risk of antibiotics. I've tweaked that, as you know, Phil. How much exposure did you get to a guy named uh, Charles Dickens in high school or middle school, elementary school? Uh, a little bit. Um, mostly forgotten. I have to say a lot of those classics uh, were somewhat lost on me. Right. We were forced to study. Yeah. But a pretty famous author back in the day in the 1800s, Charles Dickens, and a lot of our listeners will recognize the classic tales of A Christmas Carol, for example. I think that's the most famous one. But the one that came to mind as I was sketching out this episode, Phil, was his classic A Tale of Two Cities. So I thought, well, why not A Tale of Two Kitties? And I don't mean cats, of course, I mean children. We like to use real cases to illustrate our points. And I saw a girl last week, uh, perhaps a bit more than a week ago, a girl uh, who, I'll change her name by a mother's request, uh, we'll call her Madeline. She had been to Disney World with her parents in Florida. And while there, she fell down and skinned her knee. Her parents didn't think too much of it. They gave her a kiss on the forehead and put a Band-Aid on her knee came home to Calgary and a couple days later she had developed redness and some tenderness by her knee and then developed a fever and that's how she ended up in the emergency department which is where I saw her and I thought we'd contrast her to a kid similarly four years old from a couple of hundred years ago let's say 1823 at the time of Charles Dickens boyhood who also had fallen down skinned her knee developed redness and a bit of fever. No Disney World back in those days, but perhaps she'd been to the local fair. And just like Madeline presented for care to her uh, local physician. And, you know, obviously two quite different times, you know, in Dickens' words, uh, best of times, worst of times. That was the era of no antibiotics. In fact, no understanding of bacterial disease at all. And the present day where we understand bacteria as a cause of disease fairly thoroughly. And of course, we have antibiotics 
at our disposal. And I think, Phil, uh, the reason we have antibiotics, as you are about to tell us, uh, relates to a story of mold and serendipity. I have to say, embrace the mold will be the theme of this podcast. So Alexander Fleming was a Scottish, this is our uh, history of medicine. Both uh, Ed and I were in the history of medicine in med school. Um, I won. Ed, I think, was last. I'm not sure what you want. Um, <laughs> anyways, appropriate that I'm telling this story. So Alexander Fleming, a Scottish physician, was experimenting with various bacteria. He had, if I'm not sure how many of our listeners would be aware, you're using Petri dishes to grow. There's a substrate that bacteria would grow on, and then he'd be trying to see what he can use to inhibit that growth and what he can grow on those Petri dishes. Story has it, I believe, that he left for holiday. Some beaker fell over. No way, the beaker didn't fall over. He came back and mold, very much like in our fridge. Mold had grown on some of the things that we valued. And he looked in one of the Petri dishes and sure enough, mold had grown. And along the line of mold, back the bacteria that would be a certain color growing on that could clearly be seen was retreating away from the mold. So clearly there was something in that mold that was inhibiting the growth of bacteria and the bacteria was backing away from it. And that went on to become penicillin. So they call that mold, that mold came to be known, or maybe, I, I don't know the story exactly, Phil, but that mold was penicillium and and therefore the chemical that was elaborated by that mold that inhibited the bacteria came to be called eventually penicillin, if I have the origin story. Correct. That's yeah. my understanding. Yeah, yeah. And we're talking kind of late 1920s, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Just to circle back to the history of medicine course, uh, you'll remember this. At least Alexander Fleming got credit for his discovery. I think it, it was about 10 years later, maybe a bit longer than that. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine, along with a couple of other colleagues who demonstrated the full impact of his discovery. So he got credit, clearly, for discovering penicillin and therefore launching the whole era of antibiotics. There's another guy, 100 years before him, mid-1800s, I believe. Remember Semmelweis? Yes, yeah. Right, so Semmelweis of hand-washing fame. So, so his first name is Ignaz or some unpronounceable, Ignaz Semmelweis. He was uh, the, guy, the first guy who demonstrated that washing your hands between patients was a good thing. Right. Which seems unbelievable now, but the study, if I remember this correctly, is that he was washing his hands between delivering babies. And it used to be that women, when they delivered babies, there was something crazy, like a 40% mortality rate. And he showed that simply by washing his hands between laboring women, by going from woman to a washing his hand in between, there was a dramatic reduction in the number of new moms who died. So he published his results, and he was basically laughed out of town, so to speak. Which is always what happens when you first right. try so, and change so he practice. Was, he was ridiculed by his professional colleagues, and he spent the later years, the last years of his life, completely marginalized and died in a lunatic asylum. With True clean story. hands. With clean hands, maybe. <laughs> you know, in fact, I think he actually died. This is a true, uh, again, I'll have to go back and check this, but I'm pretty sure this is true, and our listeners can, again, fact check us. But I'm pretty sure he died from a gangrenous infection of one of his hands. I don't know how his hand got infected, but he died of sepsis. He washed from an, them too much. From an infected wound. <laughs> so, anyway, so back, so, you know, to your point about mold, I think... Uh, you know, it's, it's just speaking very personally here. Uh, when I say that many of us owe our lives to mold and we owe our lives to that accidental discovery of antibiotics, like for me, I had bacterial meningitis in 2007. So 16 years ago, I was in hospital, a long story that I won't bore you with here, but I was in hospital in Toronto and I had bacterial meningitis. And absolutely, without antibiotics, I wouldn't be here contaminating the airwaves with you here today, Phil, if it wasn't for molds and ergo, therefore, because of antibiotics. So what are antibiotics anyway? That's a question I put to Dr. Joe Vialumkal. Joe is an associate professor of medicine at the Cummings School of Medicine in Calgary and a pediatric infectious disease doctor. And he was kind enough to sit down with me last week to explore this whole topic of antibiotics. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you, Ed. Great to be here. Thanks for coming in to uh, talk to us about antibiotics. 
What should the average person really understand by that term antibiotics? So in general, we think of these drugs that kill or stop the growth of bacteria. Uh, we can also call them antibacterials. That's usually what we mean by antibiotics. Because these antibiotics fit into a larger category of medications called antimicrobials. And in those, we would also think about antivirals, antifungals, antiparasitic medications. But when we talk about antibiotics, we're mainly referring to antibacterial medications. For parents, often I think that's where sometimes there's some confusion because understandably, in my um, sandbox of emergency medicine, they'll come in and they'll hear from myself or from one of my colleagues that their child has an infection. And so they might uh, therefore expect that we prescribe some medicine. And it's understood by many people that the medicine we use for treating infections is an antibiotic. Antibiotics do not kill viruses. It's a misuse of the medication when we're treating viral infections with antibiotics. You know, one of the problems we have in our profession is that antibiotics are sometimes overprescribed or maybe inappropriately prescribed, prescribed because of the diagnostic confusion. Absolutely. It's certainly a challenge, especially in young children, to make that diagnosis of a bacterial process versus a viral process because the symptoms and the signs and symptoms of these illnesses are, are very similar. But there are some ways, right, Joe, to sort this out. For example, in the case of a child with a sore throat, we might look at the throat and think it's bacterial, but there's a way to prove that by taking a throat swab, for example. It's generally okay for us to swab the throat of a child where we think it might be bacterial. It's okay to wait for a day or two to see if it's positive before prescribing antibiotics, correct? Absolutely. So Phil, we use throat swabs quite a bit, obviously, but it's not the only test that we have that in our clinical practice that we can use to help us solidify our suspicion that something is a bacteria versus a virus, right? Yeah, I think that's a key point that we're trying to drive home here is proof of bacterial infection. You know, that I would say that bacteria to virus, we're talking probably three quarters of infections are going to be viral and a quarter are bacterial. You probably could even push that to nine out of 10 infections are viral, not bacterial. So when we are going to go to say this looks like a case of using antibiotics, I think we need to use tests to prove that. If it's a chest infection, I want a chest x-ray. I want to hear that the patient actually has pneumonia. If it's a throat, I want a throat swab. If it's urine, I want to see a urinary, an actual urine test showing that there's a bacterial infection, that there's blood in there, there's white cells, the things we look for. And in the scary case of meningitis, we want spinal fluid. We want to be definitive about this and not just presume that infections are bacterial and do the quick draw to antibiotics. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, great comments, of course. It's not always true, though, that we can reach for a confirmatory test like that. Sometimes we have to use our clinical gestalt and our experience as doctors uh, based on the history of the illness and what our suspicion is. So we don't always have a nice, tidy, confirmatory test. And so sometimes we do have to prescribe antibiotics based on our clinical judgment. But that's something that should be done uh, always in discussion with doctors. And, you know, I, I think what I've said to families over the years is that it's easier, uh, certainly faster, for me to reach for a prescription pad and prescribe antibiotics. It takes far more time to sit with families and explain to them why I'm not prescribing medicine like antibiotics uh, to their child when they're sick. Absolutely. You know, I guess the question is, why is it so important uh, to be careful? You know, what, what what's the sort of critical point here? What's the big deal sort of thing? And so I put that question as well to Dr. Joe. Why is it so important to take antibiotics only when they're needed? Like one of the phrases that I've heard over the years is, well, let's just be on the safe side and prescribe antibiotics. Why is it accurate to say that? Is it the safe side or is it, uh, is it a walk on the wild side? Yeah, I think we have to remember that in the right context, when, when somebody has a bacterial infection and it's a, clearly a bacterial process going on, these medications can be life-saving. They can, you know, save a, a lot of suffering, complications, prevent hospitalizations. So absolutely, when they're indicated, they are excellent medications and we do need them. And they're very important. But when somebody does not have a bacterial process 
that's causing their illness and they have some a virus or something else causing their symptoms. Giving them antibiotics can lead to adverse effects, okay? So side effects of antibiotics, there are many, just like with any other medication, there are many of these uh, side effects. And some of these side effects are short-term side effects and some of them are more long-term side effects. And we're just learning about some of these long-term side effects you know, in the last uh, 15 to 20 years. And we're gonna continue to learn more about those in the future. You and I, Phil, we see some of those side effects, uh, of course, uh, certainly the short-term ones uh, in our practice in the ED. What are some of those short-term side effects? There's a range of short-term side effects. We'll see everything possibly from a rash, to a child vomiting, which also then begs the question, people start to think, well, they must be allergic to the medication. They might genuinely be having a reaction to the medication, or in the case of an inappropriate prescription, the patient might actually have an underlying viral infection that's actually created the rash or even made the child vomit. And now we're blaming the antibiotic. Now we're knocking an antibiotic kind of off that patient's roster of what they can potentially utilize. In rare cases, anaphylaxis, but anaphylaxis rate is real and and and, and frightening when you think that... You anaphylaxis know. being like the more severe allergic reaction where you have swelling of your lips, difficulty breathing, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and, and potentially some of those can even be fatal. So I think that those are all uh, serious things to be considered when we prescribe these things that in the end, the uh, cure might be worse than the disease. It brings up a point. Uh, you mentioned rash, Phil. You know, rash is one of those things, it's, it's astonishing to me over the years, how many kids come to me, and I'm sure the same is for you, where I am convinced that there is a bacterial infection based on, say, skin infection that looks bacterial, or a bladder infection based on a test or a positive throat swab, and the parents will say to me, well, you know, little Johnny is allergic to penicillin. And then when I go back and I ask them the details of that, what they tell me is that you know, if they can remember it with some detail, and hopefully they can, they remember that, you know, maybe eight months ago or two years ago, Johnny had a cough and a fever and a runny nose and was prescribed antibiotics, and then he got a rash. And I, it's almost certainly the case. It's probably close to 90%. It's, uh, I'm throwing a number out there, I realize, but it's probably close to 90% the case where a child in that situation developed a rash because of the underlying viral infection but then the antibiotic that was put on, put into that child in the context of a viral infection, so not needed, but then the antibiotic gets blamed for the rash and therefore the child is labeled as quote-unquote allergic. Yes. And I have to say with those, as best now, now granted, we've got to take into account people work in different clinical settings. For us working in the hospital, a lot of those, I hope to undo that. So if I really feel like an anaphylaxis, you know, that extreme reaction is, the, the odds of that is low, I will say, let's give your child that antibiotic and then watch them for an hour and see if they react. And knock on wood, I have yet to have a patient react. Right. Or what I'll do sometimes if the parents are quite concerned about that is I'll, I'll send them, I'll refer them to a pediatric allergist for formal testing to try to put to bed the notion that they are truly are allergic to penicillins. Because if you're allergic to penicillins, that carves out or X's out a whole class of antimicrobials or antibiotics that you can no longer use. So it actually is an important clinical question for parents to answer with regard to their kids. It is a massive category because there's another group of antibiotics called cephalosporins that are related to penicillins and people start to extrapolate, well, if I'm allergic to this, then I'm also allergic to that. And, and you literally in the end could end up having half the known antibiotics in the world not available to you. Right. Now, as far as the longer term side effects that Dr. Joe alludes to, that relates in significant part to something that we call the microbiome. There is roughly 35, 40 trillion cells that make up the human body, uh, we think. And it's a fact that many of those cells that make up a normal human organism are, in fact, bacteria. For a long time, it was the number that was kicked around with regard to the number of cells in a normal human being that are bacteria in a normal person is in a ratio of nine to one, meaning nine bacteria for every other cell in the human body. Incredible. But that's, but it, so that was kind of an urban, right? I don't know if you can say in medicine, an urban legend. That was a medical legend that was actually not true. So there was some guy in 2014, I think, uh, a guy named Rostner, who actually took a 
proper scientific investigation, undertook a proper scientific investigation of what that ratio actually is. And it's probably closer to 50-50. But right. still, we're, we're half bacteria and half other human cells. That's number of cells, just to be clear, not the not the mass or the weight, right? So because bacteria are so tiny, they're not 50% of our weight. And when I was reading about this last week, for an average 200-pound male, right? So probably a guy like you, you're probably, I don't know what you are, Phil, but you're about uh, one pound Phil and 90% muscle and 10%, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so the average 200-pound male is about five pounds of bacteria. Right. It's amazing, really. It is amazing. And I think it, it, it you know, even the, the title of this talk, Antibiotics and Fighting Bacteria and this or that, it, it, I think it shows us that there's a balance of these things. When, when, when the bacteria is proliferating in one area and it's one strain, now we have an infection. It's in your chest, you have a pneumonia. It's in your ear, you have what we call otitis media, an ear infection. And the balance is off. And that's when it's time to correct the balance when we have definitive proof that that infection is going on. And we give the antibiotics targeted to get rid of that overgrowth of the one bacteria. But what we need to be cognizant of is we've just adjusted that whole biome, those millions, billions of bacteria that are essential for us to live. Right. Most, most of which live, uh, to be clear again, most of which live on our skin or, or in our gut, uh, specifically the large colon. But those uh, bacteria that live in our live in our gut and live on our skin are actually crucial to our long-term health. And so here's Dr. Joe on that subject. Uh, let's just have a listen to what he had to say. And we're learning more and more about that as uh, microbiome research continues all over the world. And and as you said, you know, we talk about this normal microbiome, which is a normal flora of bacteria and yeast that that colonize our system and live there in a happy way you know they're providing balance to our to our bodies and and they're there for a specific function and when you get antibiotic treatment you disrupt that balance and and so there's a term that medical people use now it's called dysbiosis dysbiosis which basically means of imbalance of 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 the microbiome so these so-called bad bacteria may start colonizing in a higher rate compared to some of the good uh, bacteria or yeast that you need there for normal function. So we're we're going to be learning more and more about that microbiome dysbiosis and, and that imbalance as the years uh, go on because this is an exploding area of research. So as Joe said, uh, Phil, there's a lot of research, a lot going on in this space. Really interesting stuff, like tentative links to asthma and to allergies and autoimmune disease. Lots of stuff, and we're still learning, as uh, Dr. Joe pointed out. I came across an article on this topic, and uh, there's a group at Cornell. There's a woman there, a really cool name, Dr. Uh, Kokuchu. I'm not making it up. She's a huge name in uh, investigating this space, and she and some colleagues actually took mice, uh, you know, a common investigational model, and they, they took mice, uh, some of them they basically sterilized with antibiotics, so they erased bacteria with antibiotics. Some were partially depleted, and then they compared them with, with normal mice. And then they, they did that whole, uh, it's kind of a uh, classic sort of thing where they exposed mice to a really loud sound, and then followed by an electric shock, right? So the, so the mice learned <laughs> to fear the sound because the sound was going to be followed by buzz, right? The electric shock. Yeah. But then they stopped doing that. So they discontinued the shocks, but they kept going with the sound. And the interesting thing was that the ordinary mice, the ones that still had their full complement of bacteria, the ones with the normal microbiome, they gradually learned not to fear the sound. They became desensitized. Huh. They realized that with time, they learned appropriately, no longer need to be scared of this. But the mice with the depleted or the non-existent microbiomes, the fear persisted. And they remained far more likely to freeze at the sound of the tone than the untreated mice did. Interesting. That would kind of penetrate into their very, whatever you want to call that, their psycho-emotional. Well, so there's so there's a huge, I, so right. I was digging around a bit on this, and there's a huge field of inquiry into this. And as you and I know, we live in, you know, whether it's overblown or not, but I, I think there's some credence to it. We live in the age of anxiety. Our teenagers are anxious, and a lot of our parents are anxious. 
So who knows? Which is the point of this podcast. And I, yeah, I totally agree. It's, it, it, uh, but it, it, what a great, I mean, I, when you first started telling me that story, I was thinking, why would they pick that as the, the kind of stimulus? Like I thought they were going to say now they expose them to some, you know, nasty virulent infection and saw how quickly they were consumed by it yeah. or something. But it, I mean, even more telling and like you say, relevant to this age where I think if there's one thing we can all say that we everywhere is anxiety and fear. Yeah, so an interesting story, of course, uh, beyond the scope of our discussion, and I certainly don't mean to suggest that there's a link between overuse of antibiotics and anxiety, but it's an interesting question, that whole gut-brain connection. Uh, and so best to be careful. One of the things I'll say to parents sometimes to drive home the sort of careful way in which I dispense antibiotics is to say that I look at antibiotics as chemotherapy. And, you know, that gets people's attention because people associate chemotherapy, of course, with cancer. But I say to parents, you know, antibiotics are a powerful chemical. And I use antibiotics for therapy when it's indicated. Powerful chemical for therapy. Ergo, chemotherapy. And I love it. I love that because nobody would question that chemotherapy is a serious thing with cancer. And then they're saying what kind of our point is, you want a definitive diagnosis, they have cancer. You're giving a chemotherapy to treat that cancer. Nobody would question that relationship. And I love us kind of driving home the responsibility around a definitive diagnosis and a chemotherapy, the antibiotics, to say, tie those two together and, and make sure that it's accurate, it's strategic, it's targeted at the infection. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's a good place for a short break, Phil. And uh, when we come back, We'll talk about one of the biggest issues that has arisen because of antibiotic use, that being superbugs. Dun, dun, dun. All right, so welcome back. Uh, so superbugs, Phil, what do we mean by that scary sounding term? Well, it should strike fear in the heart of everyone. Certainly strikes fear in my heart when, if you think this is kind of uh, something out there that's not real, as Ed and I both would say, we pull up people's tests, say a, a urine test that shows what bacteria they're growing in their urine. So we have confirmation that they have a urinary tract infection. And then it's listed beside seven common antibiotics. And you see resistant, 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 this R, 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 R. And you're just looking, thinking, oh my gosh, we're going right down the list till we see the beautiful S that says sensitive. So that yes, this child's bacteria in their urine will respond to an antibiotic. And when you start to see that list diminishing in terms of what they can have, that's what we're talking about, superbugs, multi-drug resistant bacteria where you can't treat them anymore. Some patients end up, most of these I would say are complex patients with complex issues and they might even only be able to get IV antibiotics now in order to eliminate their infection. It's frightening. So I thought this would be a big question for our good friend, Dr. Joe. As antibiotics are used, the bacteria are exposed to them and are dying off, and it leads to the survival of the fittest. So basically, those bacteria that are able to resist the action of the antibiotic will survive, and then they go on to multiply, and this is what leads to the resistance. And, and bacteria can develop resistance in multiple ways, and they have different mechanisms to acquire resistance, but yes, it's, it's a massive problem. Multi-drug resistance around the world has been highlighted by the United Nations and the WHO, the World Health Organization, as a global threat. This is something that uh, is a real and serious danger in the coming years um, because we're seeing this in, in all parts of the world. How worried should we be, really, that we may not have any antibiotics left to treat bacterial infections, do you think? It's worrisome for sure. It's worrisome, uh, not necessarily uh, an immediate danger for people who are necessarily, you know, listening to this to this conversation. But in some settings, uh, for hospitalized patients, when they acquire a multi-drug resistant bacterial infection, we do have few options to treat them now. It seems perhaps obvious, Joe, that this problem has arisen because of overuse of antibiotics by doctors. Uh, we prescribe them, after all. But 
just as an aside, uh, isn't it actually true that most of the antibiotics produced by drug companies and then used out there aren't actually prescribed by doctors, but instead are used in agriculture? I think it's roughly 70% or something like that. Now, I know this is outside of the scope of our discussion, Joe, and we're not experts on agriculture or on the ins and outs of securing a stable food supply for the world, but it's certainly an issue, isn't it? People who read about this topic or who are knowledgeable to, about this topic, you'll often hear the term One Health being used. And One Health essentially refers to the fact that humans, animals, plants, and our environment are all interconnected so that changes in systems of, of one of these groups affects all of us. So loss of biodiversity, climate change, pollution and waste, all of these things potentially contribute to multidrug resistance, you know, in different categories. So animal antibiotic resistance is also a human antibiotic resistance problem. A topic perhaps for a future podcast with the relevant uh, experts in agriculture on board. But back to uh, what we can actually control directly as physicians, Joe, what are your key messages to parents uh, that you interact with with regard to prescribing antibiotics and sort of the guardrails around giving antibiotics to their kids and the questions that parents might have concerning that? Yeah, I think the most important part of the conversation is to address their concerns, you know, because most children, you know, they have high fevers, they have, they're not themselves, their energy is poor, they're not eating and drinking. So really to address those concerns with the parents and say, yeah, we're also concerned about that. But in our assessment of the child, deciding whether a child has a bacterial process or a viral process, what are the key points? How are we making that decision? And it's important to explain to the parents what we do see with bacterial infections and what we do see with viral infections and, and sometimes how we can distinguish them. Particularly, you know, if they're coming to the hospital and you're doing blood tests, there may be some clues in the blood test, there may be clues in the urine test, and then what you're seeing, you know, and you're examining them. So kind of explaining to the parent that, oh, this looks more like a viral infection and I don't think antibiotics will be helpful for your child in this case and explaining what the things to expect over the next few days, because we often see viral infections set up kids for bacterial infections as a secondary complication. And it's very, very common. You know, we see that with colds and, 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 and influenza-like illnesses where children will be fine for the first five or six days, and then they develop a secondary fever and they get a secondary worsening. Well, that's because now they developed a bacterial complication. So in the beginning, it started out as a viral illness, but evolved, and now you've got bacteria also playing a role. So it's not uncommon that we would prescribe antibiotics later on to that same child who hasn't gotten better. So that's what you and I talk about, Phil, when we use the term anticipatory guidance, when we don't prescribe antibiotics, but we recognize that things can change. Yeah, and I think this is a key part of that patient-physician relationship or family with the parent is to talk about this. And, and I like, Ed, how you said it's far harder to take the time to explain to somebody why they don't need the antibiotic, especially someone who's walking through the door with the expectation that antibiotics are the only way for their child to get better. Because if that's all they've ever had, and that's the only way they've ever seen their child get better, logically, they think their child always needs antibiotics. So we spend the time trying to undo that to say, stay with us here. I'm going to tell you what you can expect with this illness. Lots of viral illnesses peak by day three, day four, and then you see a, a recovery over the next maybe five to seven days. And what I want to do with those parents is say, now that's not to say that a bacterial infection couldn't come into the picture and what those parents should look for. Right. But then, so the bottom line is that sometimes we actually do need to prescribe antibiotics. And uh, as we've discussed, when you do prescribe, then it puts the microbiome, uh, so to speak, somewhat at risk. And so I asked Dr. Joe what parents can do or what we can do to try to mitigate the risk that arises to the microbiome when antibiotics are prescribed. Here's Dr. Joe. It's a great question and it's one that's a bit controversial because we know about a product called probiotics. And probiotics basically 
are live microorganisms that when given inadequate amounts are supposed to give a health benefit to, to, the, to the host, okay? So probiotics are found in natural foods like yogurts and kefir and sauerkraut, kombucha, kimchi. You know, these are all different examples of natural foods that have probiotics in them. And, and these probiotics sometimes can be beneficial. The, 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 the issue here is that there's some controversy around whether it's truly effective or not because the studies haven't shown clear benefit. And we're not sure which product is best, which dosage is best, how often they should be given. And the studies that have been done on probiotics, they're not all the same, so it's hard to compare. In general, what I tell parents is when I, when I prescribe antibiotics, I usually say, I give them the information, I say probiotics are found in these natural foods. You can also get them in supplement forms. And they may replenish some of the good bacteria and good yeast you know, in the child's body. I don't know for sure, but it may help. So I tell them to take it, knowing that the evidence is not clear on it, but knowing also that the harms associated with probiotics are extremely minimal. And in fact, the only patients that I don't recommend that for is those patients who have weakened immune systems. You know, they have a clear immune deficiency where their body is not able to handle specific types of bacteria or yeast in these probiotic preparations. So outside of those special circumstances, though, even though there may not be any benefit, there is possibly some benefit. And that's at least something that parents can look to to provide some health benefit uh, for their children, although the evidence isn't really all that clear. There is some some evidence that the probiotics, specifically types of probiotics, have been used to prevent antibiotic-associated diarrhea, which is a common side effect. And again, because not all the products are the same, and they all don't they don't have the same prices. I tell parents, I say, when you go to the pharmacy or to the grocery store, the probiotic section is pretty large, and you have some probiotics that are costing fifteen dollars a bottle, and others costing eighty dollars, and the products that within them may not be that much different, right? right? But the companies and the marketing and all of this. So yeah. it's a bit of a interesting uh, product. They're not regulated like medications per se. But as I said, there may be a class effect where you say, hey, probiotics may help prevent diarrhea in some cases uh, of children taking antibiotics. That reminds me, I want to make just one quick point about antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Because as you point out, really common side effect. But there's one specific circumstance where parents need to be aware that if they give their child antibiotics and they have diarrhea that's really persistent, or if there's blood in the diarrhea, they need to seek a return visit with their doctor, right? That's right. There's a bacteria called Clostridioides difficile. In fact, it used to be called Clostridium difficile, but it's recently underwent a name change. It's called Clostridioides difficile. And in some situations, antibiotics can cause an overgrowth of this bacteria in the intestines, and children or adults may present with profuse watery diarrhea with cramps. Sometimes it can be with fever. Uh, and sometimes there can be blood in their diarrhea. Right. And that's a condition where we don't see it as often in kids compared to adults. They see it a little bit more in adults and it can cause more severe complications in adults. But when we do see it, the important thing is to try and stop the antibiotic that, that they're being given. And occasionally it does need a different antibiotic treatment to control the Clostridioides difficile infection. So that's uh, ironic, right? So they get a they get a problem that's caused by antibiotics, and the solution to the problem is is yet a different antibiotic. And I mean, in mild to moderate cases, they don't necessarily need that treatment. Sometimes it'll resolve on its own if it's a mild to moderate symptoms. But a lot of the cases are not mild to moderate; they're more moderate to severe, and then we give a treatment course. Yeah, which, which usually works, but in some cases does not. And, uh, you know, we won't get into the weeds too much on this topic, but one of the uh, last gasp treatments for treating a patient with Clostridioides difficile associated diarrhea is actually to give them what we euphemistically call an enteric transplant, which basically in plain English means a stool transplant. Absolutely. From another person, sort yeah, of thing. And, and this is something that we usually don't have to get to in children, but there are some extreme cases where that has happened. And in adults, certainly it's uh, more commonly used 
procedure. And uh, like you say, it's called a stool transplant or fecal transplant. Yeah. And you can actually take poop pills, fecal pills, to repopulate your intestines with uh, the normal healthy bacteria and yeast that are found in, in, in people's stool. So Phil, I'm curious, do you use uh, probiotics for your patients? Have you used them for your own kids? I, yes, I would say for the most part. I'd like to say I always do it. Um, sometimes I feel like, yeah, depending on the interaction or the complexity of things or too much explanation, sometimes maybe I don't. But in general, I do. I recommend that, that patients go on probiotics when they're on an antibiotic, which helps to explain to them that you're changing your gut flora, that biome, that hopefully we populate it. And it is somewhat theoretical, but if you take probiotic pills, which I have to say are very expensive. I don't think it's worth breaking the bank over it. Um, I recommend probiotic yogurt. So the ones that say A slash B, uh, um, I believe it's acidophilus bacillus, right. that the patient while they're on the antibiotics takes those to hopefully counter the, you know, the overkill that can happen from being on antibiotics. Yeah, that squares uh, fairly well with what uh, our approach has been with our kids over the years too, Phil makes us feel at least, at least a little bit better about tackling the changes in the bacterial flora that's happening when we give our uh, kids those antibiotics. So whether or not it does a whole lot of good or not, uh, again, uh, hard to say. Now, Phil, I don't know about you, but my own impression as a doc over the past uh, 20 odd years is that parents are far more educated and far less likely actually overall to be looking for or asking for antibiotics as a solution to their kid's illness. And uh, kudos to them for working to remain now uh, well-informed. But I think we have some work left to do on our own side of the fence as doctors uh, to do a better job with our own uh, antibiotic stewardship and uh, how we uh, prescribe. My sense is that parents have improved perhaps more than doctors have. I agree. And I, and I tell, like all my, I have nieces and nephews who now have their own little kids, so I get lots and lots of different phone calls from them saying, my child has a fever, my child has a sore throat, you know, should we go get antibiotics, should we go get this? And the first thing I say to them is when you go see that physician, upfront say, I'm not looking for antibiotics, I'm looking for a diagnosis and explanation. If I don't need antibiotics, I'm happy to not have antibiotics. Yeah. If it's a delayed prescription, like we're going to swab you for strep throat. Here's the prescription in hand. Wait, we'll call you with the result. So, so to give them, and, and I find, again, this generation is far better than prior generations. I think both sides are getting better. Physicians are getting better. Patients are getting better. And again, hopefully, we're getting a meeting of the minds between the patient who says, I know I always don't need antibiotics. And physicians go, perfect. That makes this conversation so much easier. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I should, I should uh, you know, with these uh, episodes, I hope we can always be cognizant of reality on the ground in the present day. And just one quick editorial comment on that, and some of our listeners will know this from reading the newspapers. There's a bit of a epidemic is too strong of a word, but there's a spike in the number of cases of a bacterial infection called invasive group A strep. And so those kids are kids who present with sore throat. And what I don't want our listeners to walk away with today at the end of this podcast is, well, those two guys said, Things are viral, sore throat, probably viral. In the current context right now, if your kid has an isolated sore throat and a fever and not much else going on, or if they have a sore throat and they look unwell, you got to take your child to see a doctor, get some throat swabbed, figure out from somebody like us whether or not they could have a streptococcal infection in their throat. Because in the current day, at least, given what we're seeing on the ground, that is an issue right now. And so, Phil, I thought I'd ask, uh, Dr. Joe, for his thoughts around the challenges of uh, doctors uh, navigating not prescribing antibiotics. You know, those discussions with parents, they take time. Oftentimes, we see parents coming to us and their child's on antibiotics, so they just don't know why. And I said, you know, what was the infection? Did, they, did the doctor explain to you that the child has an ear infection or a throat infection or a sinus infection? They said, no, they just the child had cough, and so we got antibiotics. So there's a lack of understanding and sometimes, you know, lack of making the parents aware of why specifically antibiotics are, are being used in a specific case for their child. And so I think we, we physicians uh, as a group, we need to do a better job of 
transmitting that information about the rationale that we're using to prescribe antibiotics. Yeah, and, and it's it uh, generates quite a bit of parental frustration, to be honest, with uh, doctors as a group because they will hear one message from one doctor, they'll hear a different message from a doctor like me, and they'll look at me and say, don't you guys go to the same schools? Right. And to, to which I say, well, yes, we do, just as you and I did, Joe. And uh, with that, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to come and offer your viewpoint and your many nuggets of wisdom uh, for this podcast. I think that parents listening to this will find this a useful discussion. So thank you once again, uh, Dr. Vaya Lumkal. A uh, huge thank you, Joe. And I hope we've given parents a better understanding of the issues at play. Thank you again. Yeah, you're welcome. So that's Dr. Joe, the soft-spoken and uh, probably one of the smartest docs I know. I've watched... Uh, Phil, I've watched Joe with patients, and uh, he's so reassuring with parents. He's so soothing that I've often thought to myself, you know, his patients never need antibiotics. They just need him talking to the family, and they, they just get better. The bedside uh, manner. Yeah, the right? bedside manner. It's but, you know, oh, just a fantastic physician, and I uh, really appreciated him joining uh, our discussion. So, Phil, let's finish off by revisiting the uh, tale of two kitties. First off, uh, Madeline, uh, the four-year-old girl that I saw recently uh, in the emergency department. So I thought she had cellulitis, which is a bacterial infection of skin. Based on my exam and, you know, the clinical presentation, pretty classic. Uh, so I gave her... And what was that classic? Just because just I think a lot of our listeners wouldn't understand. Like when I say to people cellulitis, they're like, what? What What? what do you mean? What yeah. I, I've seen rashes. Why isn't that a cellulitis? And and why call this? Why not call it skinitis or something? Or what, yeah. what are you talking about? It's a pretty good question, actually. So we'll, we'll actually deal with this a lot in the summer. Um, where there's confusion. So first of all, uh, cellulitis is a like a red area of skin that's localized. So it's in one area, as opposed to being kind of a generalized uh, pinpoint rash over your whole body. Agreed. But in the summer, you know, we'll get kids who have a bee sting, for example, or a mosquito bite that they scratch. And they also will get a large red area. And the parents, a lot of them come to see a doctor this must be that cellulitis thing you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Or they come to, and and so they'll come and they're worried about this big red area because it looks dramatic. But the difference is a couple of things. First of all, those bug bite reactions or insect bite reactions, in general, they're not very tender to touch. I think that's a key piece. Yeah. Cellulitis hurts. It hurts. Because you can have some nasty, nasty rashes and you push on it. You know, whether we use a popsicle tech, give the kid a popsicle. He's focused on the popsicle. Push on it. Kid doesn't even bat an eye. Cellulitis, popsicle, push on it, kid is not happy. He's going to whack you in the head with yeah. his popsicle. Stuff it or down drop your it throat. and, start, and yeah. start wailing. And then the other thing is that kids with cellulitis will often have a fever. Uh, not always, but often will. Whereas a child with a simple insect bite reaction, they will not have a fever. So that's a pretty important distinguishing uh, feature. In any case, uh, I diagnosed young Mary with cellulitis. And as you and I know, Phil, uh, the treatment for uh, bacterial cellulitis is to give antibiotics. And in cases where we think the infection is spreading fairly rapidly, we tend to start off with intravenous antibiotics because it gets the drug to the site of infection a bit more quickly. Uh, so that's what we did. We inserted an intravenous line, gave a dose of IV antibiotics, and then I arranged for her to be seen the next day by uh, one of our colleagues in infectious disease at what we call the IV therapy clinic. They saw her the next morning. She was already vastly improved, whereupon they changed her antibiotics to oral antibiotics, and she completed another uh, seven or eight days of antibiotics. I checked in with that family a couple of days ago, uh, and her mother tells me that her daughter made a very quick recovery. Things are completely back to normal. Thankfully, she had nothing in the way of antibiotic side effects, and they are quite happy with the fact that she's now completely uh, back to normal. Now, contrast that to the hypothetical Mary from back in Charles Dickens' day. No antibiotics available to use to treat her, and, and really no understanding of bacteria as a cause of disease in the first place. Now, she would have been subjected to some of the so-called cures and treatments of the day, uh, things like uh, bloodletting, uh, application of topical antiseptics, perhaps phenols or topical mercury was used, I believe, in those times. And undoubtedly, she was uh, given the religiosity of society at that time. 
She was undoubtedly uh, prayed over repeatedly. It's conceivable that none of those things would have worked particularly well. And so this unfortunate Mary had a good chance of developing a more significant, more deep-seated infection that spread to her bloodstream, and then she would have died. And you know what, Phil, what the obituary would have read back in that day for an unfortunate little four-year-old girl like Mary, right? After a short battle with illness, poor Mary succumbed to the ravages of fever, fever, which was the topic of our first episode. And, you know, as you and I both... Uh, we laid out an exhaustive detail with our, the first time we sat together was that, you know, the thing that carried her off to the hereafter was not fever. It was the bacteria that the fever was trying to contain. They were mixing up symptom and diagnosis. Her diagnosis was bacterial skin infection, cellulitis, turning into sepsis, which is fatal. And the most prevailing symptom that they would have seen was fever. So therefore, she was consumed by fever. Right. So we're pretty fortunate today to have uh, not just the understanding of the bacterial causes of disease, but to have this wonderful tool called antibiotics to combat those bacteria that are causing illness. So antibiotics, uh, a great blessing. But maybe this is a good time to remind you, Phil, of the second line in Dickens' uh, Tale of Two Cities which goes, it was the age of wisdom and it was the age of foolishness. And we always like to think that we live in the age of enlightenment, uh, you know, until the years go by and then citizens of a future generation look back and realize that, you know, people like you and I are quacks as viewed from the lens of the future. But, you know, to some extent, uh, we have been a little bit foolish with regard to having this great tool of antibiotics and uh, not being uh, as judicious as perhaps we could be with regard to applying it to the treatment of human disease. I, I guess what I'm trying to say in my clumsy way is that we can do a better job of being good stewards of the antibiotics that we have so that we don't lose the wonderful tool that it is. And Ed, I'm nowhere near as literary as you, but let's dumb this down. I believe it was Peter Parker, Spider-Man's <laughs> grandpa, <laughs> who told him when he discovered his superpowers that with great powers come great responsibility. And likewise, antibiotics are a great, great tool, and it is contingent upon physicians to use them with the most responsible practices possible. All right, so with the Spider-Man and Charles Dickens uh, references aside, this is a good time to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll offer up some key takeaways from today's episode on the risk of antibiotics. We'll be right back. Phil, what are the key takeaways that we can leave our listeners with today? Well, I think first and foremost, antibiotics are a key tool in fighting infectious disease, as we've gone over. I think the key point is they kill bacteria, not viruses, and we need to differentiate those. So whenever possible, we should try and generate a reasonable evidence or hypothesis in terms of saying that, yes, we think this is a bacterial infection, bacterial disease. I think some other key points, this multi-drug resistance superbugs, that's a real thing. It's happening. We're contributing to it by the overprescription of antibiotics, inappropriate prescription of antibiotics. And so we need to be as diligent as possible about making sure that, or back to our other points, that we are responsibly prescribing and patients are getting the appropriate antibiotic for their bacterial infection. Probiotics, don't break your, your wallet over this or break the bank. Um, it's okay to use them. There's no obvious downside to it, but the benefits may be limited. I think our key point, again, back to that idea that our focus needs to be first and foremost on good antibiotic stewardship. We're going to use antibiotics only when they are indicated. And as parents, when your child is given antibiotics, make sure you understand. You should be able to go, and this is where we would see other patients, say, in the emergency department to say, oh, wow, they're on amoxicillin. What's that for? And they say, well, they've got an infection. And you're, where is that infection? What is that space? Is it in their ear? Is it their throat? Is it a pneumonia? And understand that. Thanks, Phil. That's a great summary. And with that, it's time to segue to our listener mailbag. Okay, so we had a number of comments in response to our first episode on the topic of fever in kids. We want to highlight just a few of them here. The first one comes from a pediatric nurse, a pediatric emergency nurse, related to remarks that we made about parents coming to the triage 
uh, at the emergency department and then being given Tylenol and Advil by the triage nurses. And this is what Caitlin had to say. She said the section about triage nurses was a little disappointing. I'd like to think that we give Tylenol and Advil in situations where there is not just a fever, but lethargy and grumpiness. Thank you for that, Caitlin. And uh, Phil, what Caitlin's responding to is a remark we made around perhaps uh, parents getting the wrong idea when they come to emerge and their kid is given uh, Tylenol and Advil at the triage desk when they have a fever. And Caitlin's uh, simply pointing out that the excellent nurses that we have in our emergency departments really are on the same page uh, as physicians with regard to giving Tylenol and Advil for comfort uh, rather than specifically for fever. And of course, Caitlin, we know that, and uh, we have nothing but the utmost respect for the skill set and talents of our triage nurses. Uh, probably the toughest job in the ED, frankly. First line of contact with parents, with worried parents who, uh, when their kids are sick. And we are so utterly dependent on the ability of our nurses to figure out, first of all, how sick kids are who show up there and uh, in which order they need to be seen. And we have nothing but the utmost respect for the counsel that they provide uh, to worried parents when they show up in the ED. I routinely have the stage set by the triage nurse who's given Tylenol and Advil and made a lethargic, uncomfortable-looking child made better, and I can look at the parents and say, look what your child looks like now. And often the parents will be saying, if they look like this, I wouldn't be here. And so I think that absolutely sets the stage, absolutely key part that they do, and we totally appreciate it. We have a note uh, from Michelle, who is a mom of two girls. She says, thank you for the podcast. So much useful information. Really appreciate you taking the time to put this together. One question, though. You seem to emphasize that Advil and Tylenol are optional, but then at one point you mentioned, quote, breaking the fever, unquote, so you can see what your child looks like with the fever gone. Can you clarify that point? Is it important to do? Yeah, and I think the key point here, a couple things. Like, you're only as good as a parent, as you'll see, as a first parent with your first child, as what you've seen. So what I, I would say is that Tylenol and Advil are optional. As we said, fever does not hurt kids. When you're worried about how your child looks, and that's based partly on your experience and what you've seen. If you've never seen a one-year-old burning up with a fever, that could be a real panic. If you have Advil Tylenol, you can break that temperature. Take that same parent, maybe who has five kids and it's their fifth kid, and they're like, you know what? I know this fever is going to break in an hour. I'm not actually treating it. My child looks warm. They look somewhat uncomfortable, but not that bad. So it's a tool. It can be used, and it can be used based on your comfort level with what you're seeing with your child. It doesn't have to be used. And then we have a comment from a listener named Chris. Chris happens to be a doctor, but also a parent. And Chris said, I thought this was an absolutely fantastic and accurate discussion about fevers and kids. When to worry, when not to worry, what to do. Well worth to listen for parents or healthcare providers, or good to send to someone you know who might have concerns or questions in that realm. To which I say, thank you, Chris, for that uh, shout out. We appreciate the feedback and the encouragement. This has been a, I think you'd agree again, Phil, big learning curve for us. It's a new medium. Our whole goal is to be useful on a larger scale, perhaps in seeing one patient or family at a time. So, you know, to our listeners, uh, yes, please do share. If you found uh, this discussion or any of our previous uh, episodes useful, please share with uh, your families uh, and your friends. Without doubt, the more regular listeners we can acquire, the more likely we'll be able to keep this project going. Yeah, absolutely. And and we don't have fragile egos. So if there's certain things you think we're missing or you'd like to hear about or we're not doing a good enough job about or biting our teeth into, please let us know. We want this to be dynamic, interactive with the listeners. We want the listeners to come back and forward it on to family and friends so we can keep this going. So keep the feedback coming. And we hope you'll join us for our next episode, which is all about getting stoned. Well, it's about teenagers getting stoned and whether that's a problem. That episode is titled Stoned, The Risk of Pot. And we hope you'll join us. Thank you, Phil. See you next time. And a big thank you again to Dr. Joe for lending us his insights. And again, thank you all for listening.
Thank you for listening to Cloudy with a Risk of Children, hosted by emergency physicians Dr. Edward Less and Dr. Phil Ukrainitz. A full transcript of today's episode can be found at riskofkids.substack.com. We'd love some feedback. Send us your comments or ideas you'd like to see us explore on future shows. You can reach us at feedback at riskofkids.com. That's feedback at riskofkids.com. Most episodes of Cloudy with a Risk of Children feature a listener mailbag where we respond to some of the feedback we've received. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better, points us to topics that are relevant to you, and helps us reach new listeners. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Until then, remember, kids are like boomerangs. They're wonderful to hold, but they're meant to fly. The views expressed on this show should not be taken or construed as personal medical advice. For individual medical opinions, please consult your own doctor. Cloudy with the Risk of Children is a Studio D podcast production.